Golden Bridge isn't falling down. In fact, it's in excellent health, considering it straddled the River Thames for 200 years before being dismantled, shipped halfway around the world and re-erected stone by stone in the middle of a lake in Arizona. And if you were to take one of the pleasure craft which now ply their way across Lake Havasu, you might find yourself looking a little more closely at those stones as you pass under one of the five wide arches of the bridge. It might be worth doing so because they have a fascinating innovation story to tell. The Romans were the first to span the River Thames around the time of Caesar's invasion, but it took another hundred years before a permanent structure albeit still one made of wood, was put in place around AD 45. That crossing had a chequered history, versions of it rising, falling, even burning, before in 1209 the first stone bridge was built. It must have been good workmanship because that one survived for the next 600 years. But eventually it needed replacing. And a competition to design a new bridge was held in 1799, and it was won by the architect John Rennie. Work on construction began in 1824, but it took another 10 years before the new bridge was opened. 10 years and a lot of granite. 10,271 pieces, to be precise, each of them weighing around a tonne. And the trouble with granite is that A, it's heavy, and B, it isn't always close to hand. It takes millions of years to form, and where it does may not be in the same location as where you'd like to use it. And for John Rennie, this was a challenge. He needed the granite in London, but it was actually dug up 200 miles away in Devon, high up on Dartmoor. So if he wanted to use it, he'd need to solve some big logistical challenges. Enter the Templar family. Three generations of entrepreneurs with a shared instinct not only for innovation, but also for moving ideas to effective scale. Grandfather James Templar was born in Exeter in 1722 and worked his way up from being the son of a brazier to become a successful civil engineer with a reputation for dockyard construction. He earned enough money through that to buy a handsome estate in Stover, Devon, where he erected a house made of the local granite, quarried from high up on Hay Tor. He was also far-sighted enough to buy not only the land surrounding his house, but also the hills nearby and their associated quarrying rights. But it wasn't granite that preoccupied his son, also named James. Or rather it was, but not in the form of big, heavy rocks. He was interested in much smaller ones, microscopic fragments to be precise, which, when mixed into a slurry, make clay. And clay, especially of the right quality and consistency, has a useful property. You can shape it into plates, bowls, mugs, cups, saucers, basins, almost anything. And then you can fire it in a kiln to bring out its strength and stability. Finish it in interesting ways, paint it, glaze it, polish it, 
and you have exactly the kind of household artefacts which the citizens of London and every other growing population centre of the late 18th century wanted in ever-increasing volumes. Innovators like Josiah Wedgwood had begun to build their business empires based on manufacture and export of high-quality ceramics, for which the UK, and particularly the Staffordshire area known as the Potteries, is still world-famous. Brands like Royal Worcester, Spode and Wedgwood are wonderful reminders of the elegance and skill which goes into their manufacture. But to make high-quality ceramics, you need high-quality raw materials. Clay is made up of tiny particles of rock, washed down hillsides over millions of years, gathering in plains where it can be dug from pits and open-cast mines. China clay is the most abundant, but ball clay is more prized because it's white, pliable and produces the best ceramics. And ball clay, a great deal of it, was what the Stover mansion and the extensive surrounding estate, all owned by the Templar family, was sitting on. It had been since the tertiary period, around 30 million years earlier, when the Sticklepath Fault occurred, which split the Devon landscape from Biddeford on the north coast to Torbay on the south, and created the subsidence which enabled the accumulation of ball clay deposits. It was a visit by Josiah Wedgwood to the area which gave James, the younger Templar, his business idea. Wedgwood was looking for high-quality clay, and while the China clays in Cornwall, further to the west, were good, they lacked the plasticity and workability of ball clays. Templar realised that Wedgwood and the growing band of industrialists in the potteries represented a ready market for what he could dig up, provided he could ship it to where it was needed. Not the simplest of challenges. Horse and cart were the main transportation method for the early clay pits, but the roads were rough and ready, and the journey to the Midlands prohibitively long, 200 miles and several days. But if it were possible to ship it along a canal to the nearby River Teen, and then transfer it from barges to ships, well, they could sail anywhere. Liverpool, where it could serve the potteries, London, even internationally, wherever it was wanted. All James needed was a canal. And so he built one. He began in January 1790 and originally planned to run from Stover to connect with the wide tidal river Teen near the town of Newton Abbott. He invested over a thousand pounds of his own money, close to a million in today's prices, and even arranged an act of parliament to allow him to raise further money. But in fact, he didn't need it, having completed the stretch to Venterford and the river by 1792. It was an impressive achievement from the engineering side, running a distance of nearly three kilometres, including five locks and drawing water from nearby rivers and lakes to raise and lower them. The work required dredging the River Teen near its connection to allow deeper draft barges and putting in place towpaths and lining the sides of the canal to prevent erosion. One of the many innovations his team came up with was the construction of a graving dock, 
a lock which was built with a basin to one side, into which barges could be drawn and worked on as a dry dock. His father, with his long experience of a lifetime building dockyards for the Royal Navy, would probably be looking down from his portrait and feeling rather proud. The plan worked. Barges could move 30 tonnes at a time from the clay pits inland, along the canal and into the river. There the cargo would be transshipped to bigger seagoing vessels leaving from the port of Tynmouth. In 1798, Wedgwood gave him a major contract to supply clay, and others soon followed. Not only did he make money then from his own clay sales, he also ran a profitable transportation business for others in the area. That wasn't so hard when eight out of the ten barges plying the route were Templar-owned. By 1816, trade on the Teen had increased from 400 boatloads of clay per year, before the canal was built, to 600, and by 1854, to over a 1,000 per year. James didn't rest on his laurels. He continued to innovate, improving and extending the canal, constructing better loading and unloading facilities, adding boat repair and maintenance and other services, and generally developing a very successful business, which he ran until his death in 1813. His son George inherited the estate, but preferred to leave the running of it to his lawyer. He continued to make the most of his privileged circumstances, enjoying the early 19th century equivalent of a rock star lifestyle. His was a world of exciting hobbies like hunting, writing poetry, amateur dramatics and cricket. He also had a mistress installed in his house with whom he had six children. But rock and roll also have a rather literal part to play in the next phase of the Templar family's entrepreneurial journey. George had lived all his life amongst Devon granite and was aware of the growing demand for it as a strong, workable and elegant building material. It was just unfortunate that it was all in the wrong place. Most of the demand was far away in cities like London. But he'd also seen what vision and some systems thinking could do firsthand with the example of his father's canal. And so he sought to apply the same principles to rocks. The problem, once again, was all in the logistics. The Templars owned the granite quarries and the land around them, but transporting heavy rocks down a steep hillside isn't easy, even with sure-footed ponies. It's the kind of problem the railways would be good at, but they'd only just been invented and weren't anywhere near ready for this kind of work. But the germ of an idea lay in the solution of using tracks along which the rocks could be carried. What if he could create a tramway along which carts could bring the stones down to sea level? Well, then he could use his father's canal to transport them to ports and wherever they were needed. It was really just adding another link to the logistics chain which the family had already built. Though not a simple link. Haytor, where the quarry lies, is at the top of Dartmoor, about 450 metres above sea level, so the tramway would have some steep descending to do. And iron wasn't really an option for making rails, too costly 
and still an immature technology. But there was plenty of an alternative material around in the form of granite stones. Suitably shaped and laid as tracks, could they form the basis of a granite tramway? George thought it was worth a try. He succeeded, and it was an impressive sight on top of the moor. Ten miles, sixteen kilometres of it, complete with sidings, switches, passing places where descending teams could meet those coming back with empty carts. You can still see it today, a testament to the design and durability of the idea and its construction. It was built in 1820 and quickly helped establish the business of granite quarrying and shipping. By 1850, the quarries employed over a hundred men and its stones were exported right round the world. Wooden carts were drawn in trains of 12, pulled by a team of 18 horses walking in single file. Uh, they were hitched to the rear of the train on the downward leg, essentially acting as brakes to slow the descent from the high quarries. On return, thankfully pulling empty wagons they would be walking in front. But it wasn't just the tramway. George also oversaw extending the canal, building better barges which would take the granite all the way along the River Teen to the port of Tynmouth, where he built a new quay in 1827 to handle the transshipment to seagoing vessels. And this opened up not only the whole UK market, but also opportunities in exports. Which brings us back to London Bridge, and indeed to many other construction projects happening in the capital in the heyday of the 19th century. The British Museum, the General Post Office, Ludgate Circus, all of them built of Haytor granite. The stones themselves are just a symbol of an underlying business model, a system for creating value by getting the stones to the right place, at the right time, and at the right profitable price. What the Templars did for clay and then for granite was create an ecosystem, connecting resources and activities to specific and well understood needs to create value. Not a single bright idea, but a system. And in many ways, the Templars built an early version of a platform business. By laying down that basic logistics infrastructure, the canal and the tramway plus the shipping, they could then add other value-adding services. Freight haulage, clay and granite sales, docks, ship brokerage and repair. And they opened up their platform. Other ship owners, clay and granite dealers could use it. Nor was theirs a one-way system. Archaeologists have found evidence for coal and flint cobbles being transported inland from the coast for use in local industries. So a key innovation lesson emerges from this. Think about systems, even at the outset. Think big by all means, vision is essential. But also think in terms of that bigger picture, how the different parts of the business model are going to come together in an architecture which creates value. Smart entrepreneurs find ways to leverage returns not only from their core idea, but from the other elements and players in the system as well. They build platforms. Canals seem to attract such systems thinkers, which kind of goes with the territory. You can't simply dig a trench and fill it with water. 
you need to think about flows of water in and out and raising and lowering it through lock systems. And you need boats designed to use this kind of network efficiently. Above all, you need a value proposition based on linking markets who need stuff with suppliers who want to ship and sell it. And you need to have the capacity to engineer across all those multiple innovation sites. Just like the Templars did. Mm -hmm.